Ichabod's terror rose to desperation. He rained a shower of kicks and blows upon gunpowder, hoping to give his companion the slip. But the specter started full jump with him. Away then they dashed, stones flying and sparks flashing at every bound. Ichabod's flimsy garments fluttered in the air as he stretched his long, lank body away over his horse's head in the eagerness of his flight. Gunpowder, who seemed possessed with a demon, plunged headlong downhill. That was Eduardo Ballerini, reading a few lines from The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving, written in 1819 and set less than 10 miles from where I'm recording this intro. You're listening to Yesteryear Stories from Home, a series that features the first-hand reminiscences of the joys, challenges, and adventures of living in a small village on the Hudson just up the river from New York City. I'm Melanie Hoops, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our show. In this installment, our co-producer Eduardo Ballerini reads Washington Irving's fall classic, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Perhaps you've seen the old Disney version with Bing Crosby, or you've worn the Halloween costume, or right now you're forming some image of a goblin mounted on a rearing black horse against the spindly trees in the moonlight. In this episode, we pair it all back to Washington Irving's words themselves, which reveal just why this tale is so adaptable. In a tumble of scenes, he animates the romantic, the longing, and the American moments that form this notoriously inconclusive tale. Perhaps at the other end, you'll have some questions like we did. What is all this humor doing in such a sad tale? Where do our sympathies lie with the hard-working, greedy Ichabod Crane? Who can be trusted? What in the dickens happens at the end? So let us first turn to a legend himself, master storyteller Jonathan Cruck. On weekends in October, you can catch him complete with tricorn hat, ruffled shirt collar, and a carved wooden walking stick on the grounds at Sunnyside, Irving's home on the Hudson in Irvington, New York, where the author lived until his dying day in 1859. Cruck's performance of Irving's tale is a true theatrical experience to be witnessed. Here to provide us with a little context is Jonathan Cruck. Greetings all yesteryear fans. This is Jonathan Cruck, the legend of Sleepy Hollow storyteller. Washington Irving wrote this now classic tale in 1820, introducing the world to iconic American characters like the first nerd, Ichabod Crane, the lovable bully, Brom Bones, the clever flirt, Katrina Van Tassel, and he sent galloping into our consciousness that unrelenting figure on horseback without a head, the headless horseman of Sleepy Hollow. The tale turned Irving from a lawyer into a founding father of American literature. And the story still continues to haunt us. Yes, because of the galloping goblin and those iconic American characters, but also because it has mystery, intrigue at the very end. We wonder, what happens to Ichabod? And is the Headless Horseman still out there? Thus, it's become a fall classic. Now, Ichabod Crane, in some respects, represents the tide of change overwhelming the United States and Europe in 1820, the Industrial Revolution, 
People in Sleepy Hollow, Dutch Americans, have certain traditions that they're holding on to, and they're xenophobic, and they, of course, don't trust the likes of Ichabod Crane. And the tale also echoes some of the sentiments brought up in Rip Van Winkle, mainly Washington Irving enjoys showing us how not too long ago America was this quaint colonial place with country bumpkins like Rip Van Winkle and uh, Ichabod Crane. Now it's becoming something altogether different and people are coming from not just New England but all over the world and kind of taking over this new land. Though the tale is quite verbose in a way, with descriptions of the dominant spirit, the commander-in-chief of all powers of the air in Sleepy Hollow, is an apparition of a figure on horseback. Again, without a, well, you know what. But that use of picturesque and grandiloquent language is what makes Washington Irving charming. And getting the mystery, getting the full story of the Headless Horseman and Ichabod Crane makes this story, even unto this day, 201 years later, an enchanting legend to listen to. So now, enjoy. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving in the bosom of one of those spacious coves which indent the eastern shore of the Hudson, at that broad expansion of the river denominated by the ancient Dutch navigators the Tappan Zee, there lies a small market town, which is generally known by the name of Tarrytown. Not far from this village, perhaps about two miles, there is a little valley among high hills which is one of the quietest places in the whole world. A small brook murmurs through it, and with the occasional whistle of a quail or tapping of a woodpecker, is almost the only sound that ever breaks the uniform tranquility. From the listless repose of the place, this sequestered glen has long been known by the name of Sleepy Hollow. Some say that the place was bewitched during the early days of the Dutch settlement. Others, that an old Indian chief, the wizard of his tribe, held his powwows there before the country was discovered by Master Hendrick Hudson. Certain it is, the place still continues under the sway of some witching power that holds a spell over the minds of the descendants of the original settlers. They are given to all kinds of marvelous beliefs, are subject to trances and visions, and frequently hear music and voices in the air. The dominant spirit that haunts this enchanted region is the apparition of a figure on horseback without a head. It is said to be the ghost of a Hessian trooper, whose head has been carried away by a cannonball in some nameless battle during the Revolutionary War, and who is ever seen by the country folk hurrying along in the gloom of the night. Historians of these parts allege that the body of the trooper, having been buried in the yard of a church at no great distance, the ghost rides forth to the scene of battle in nightly quest of his head, and that the rushing speed with which he sometimes passes along the hollow is owing to his being in a hurry to get back to the churchyard before daybreak. The spectre is known at all the country firesides by the name of the Headless Horseman of Sleepy Hollow. In this by-place of nature there abode, some thirty years since, Ichabod Crane, a native of Connecticut 
who tarried in Sleepy Hollow for the purpose of instructing the children of the vicinity. He was tall and exceedingly lank, with narrow shoulders, long arms and legs, hands that dangled a mile out of his sleeves, and feet that might have served for shovels. His head was small and flat at top, with huge ears, large green glassy eyes, and a long snipe nose, so that it looked like a weathercock perched upon his spindle neck to tell which way the wind blew. To see him striding along on a windy day, with his clothes bagging and fluttering about him, one might have mistaken him for some scarecrow eloped from a cornfield. His schoolhouse was a low building of one large room, rudely constructed of logs. It stood in a rather lonely but pleasant situation, with a formidable birch tree growing at one end of it. From hence the low murmur of his pupils' voices, conning over their lessons, might be heard on a drowsy summer's day, interrupted now and then by the voice of the master in a tone of menace or command, or by the appalling sound of the birch as he urged some wrong-headed Dutch urchin along the flowery path of knowledge. All this he called doing his duty. When school hours were over, Ichabod was even the companion and playmate of the larger boys, and on holiday afternoons would convoy some of the smaller ones home, who happened to have pretty sisters, or good housewives from others, noted for the comforts of the cupboard. Indeed, it behooved him to keep on good terms with his pupils. The revenue arising from his school would have been scarcely sufficient to furnish him with daily bread, for he was a huge feeder, and though lank, had the dilating powers of an anaconda. To help out his maintenance, he was, according to custom in those parts, boarded and lodged at the homes of his pupils a week at a time. That this might not be too onerous for his rustic patrons, he assisted the farmers occasionally by helping to make hay, mending the fences, and driving the cows from pasture. He laid aside, too, all the dominant dignity with which he lorded it in the school, and became wonderfully gentle and ingratiating. He found favor in the eyes of the mothers by petting the children, particularly the youngest, and he would sit with a child on one knee and rock a cradle with his foot for whole hours together. In addition to his other vocations, he was the singing master of the neighborhood and picked up many bright shillings by instructing the young folks in psalmody. The schoolmaster is generally a man of some importance in the female circle of a rural neighborhood. How he would figure among the country damsels in the courtyard, between services on Sundays, gathering grapes for them from the wild vines that overran the surrounding trees, reciting for their amusement all the epitaphs on the tombstones, while the more bashful bumpkins hung sheepishly back, envying his superior elegance and address. He was, moreover, esteemed by the women as a man of great erudition, for he had read several books quite through. His appetite for the marvelous was extraordinary. It was often his delight, after his school was dismissed, to stretch himself on the clover bordering the little brook and there con over direful tales in the gathering dusk. Then as he wended his way to the farmhouse where he happened to be quartered, every sound of nature, the bodding cry of the tree toad, the dreary hooting of the screech owl, fluttered his excited imagination. His only resource on such occasions was to sing psalm tunes, and the good people of Sleepy Hollow were often filled with awe at hearing his nasal melody floating along the dusky road. Another of his sources of fearful pleasure was to pass long winter evenings with the old Dutch wives, as they sat spinning by the fire, 
with a row of apples roasting and spluttering along the hearth, and listened to their marvelous tales of ghosts and goblins, haunted bridges and haunted houses, and particularly of the headless horseman. But if there was a pleasure in all this while snugly cuddling in the chimney corner, it was dearly purchased by the terrors of his subsequent walk homeward. How often did he shrink with curdling awe at some rushing blast, howling among the trees of a snowy night, in the idea that it was the galloping hessian of the hollow. All these, however, were mere phantoms of the dark. Daylight put men to all these evils. He would have passed a pleasant life of it if his path had not been crossed by a being that causes more perplexity to mortal man than ghosts, goblins, and the whole race of witches put together. And that was a woman. Among the musical disciples who assembled one evening in each week to receive his instructions in psalmody was Katrina van Tassel, the only child of a substantial Dutch farmer. She was a blooming lass of fresh eighteen, plump as a partridge, ripe and melting and rosy-cheeked as one of her father's peaches, and universally famed not merely for her beauty, but her vast expectations. She was withal a little of a coquette. She wore ornaments of pure yellow gold to set off her charms, and a provokingly short petticoat to display the prettiest foot and ankle in the country round. Ichabod Crane had a soft and foolish heart toward the sex, and it is not to be wondered at that so tempting a morsel soon found favor in his eyes, more especially after he had visited her in her paternal mansion. Old Baltus Van Tassel was a perfect picture of a thriving, contented, liberal-hearted farmer. The Van Tassel stronghold was situated on the banks of the Hudson. Hard by the farmhouse was a vast barn, every window and crevice of which seemed bursting forth with the treasures of the farm. The pedagogue's mouth watered as he looked upon this sumptuous promise of luxurious winter fare. In his devouring mind's eye, he pictured to himself every roasting pig running about with an apple in his mouth. The pigeons were snugly put to bed in a comfortable pie and tucked in with a coverlet of crust. As the enraptured Ichabod fancied all this, and as he rolled his great green eyes over the fat meadowlands, his heart yearned after the damsel who was to inherit these domains, and his imagination expanded with the idea how they might be readily turned into cash, and the money invested in immense tracts of wild land and shingle palaces in the wilderness. His busy fancy already presented to him the blooming Katrina with the whole family of children mounted on the top of a wagon loaded with household trumpery, and he beheld himself bestriding a pacing mare with a colt at her heels, setting out for Kentucky, Tennessee, or the Lord knows where. When he entered the house, the conquest of his heart was complete. It was one of those spacious farmhouses, with high-ridged but low-sloping roofs, built in the style handed down from the first Dutch settlers, the projecting eaves forming a piazza along the front. From the piazza, the wandering Ichabod entered the hall, which formed the center of the mansion. Here, rows of resplendent pewter, ranged on a long dresser, dazzled his eyes. In one corner stood a huge bag of wool ready to be spun. Ears of Indian corn and strings of dried apples and peaches hung in gay festoons along the walls. And a door left ajar 
gave him a peep into the best parlor, where the claw-footed chairs and dark mahogany tables shone like mirrors. From the moment Ichabod laid his eyes upon these regions of delight, the peace of his mind was at an end, and his only study was how to win the heart of the peerless daughter of Van Tassel. In this enterprise, however, he had to encounter a host of rustic admirers, who kept a watchful and angry eye upon each other, but were ready to fly out in the common cause against any new competitor. Among these, the most formidable was a burly, roaring, roistering blade of the name of Brom van Brunt, the hero of the country round, which rang with his feats of strength and hardihood. He was broad-shouldered, with short curly black hair, and a bluff but not unpleasant countenance, having a mingled air of fun and arrogance. From his Herculean frame, he had received the nickname of Brom Bones. He was famed for great skill in horsemanship. He was foremost at all races and cockfights, and with the ascendancy which bodily strength acquires in rustic life, was the umpire in all disputes. He was always ready for either a fight or a frolic, but he had more mischief and good humor than ill will in his composition. He had three or four boon companions who regarded him as their model, and at the head of whom he scoured the country, attending every scene of feud or merriment for miles round. Sometimes his crew would be heard dashing along past the farmhouses at midnight with whoop and halloo, and the old dames would exclaim, Aye, there goes Brom Bones and his gang! This hero had for some time singled out the blooming Katrina for the object of his uncouth gallantries. And though his amorous toyings were something like the gentle caresses of a bear, yet it was whispered that she did not altogether discourage his hopes. Certain it is, his advances were signals for rival candidates to retire, insomuch that when his horse was seen tied to Van Tassel's paling on a Sunday night, all other suitors passed by in despair. Such was the formidable rival with whom Ichabod Crane had to contend. Considering all things, a stouter man than he would have shrunk from the competition. Ichabod had, however, a happy mixture of pliability and perseverance in his nature. He was in form and spirit like a supplejack. Though he bent, he never broke. To have taken the field openly against his rival would have been madness. Ichabod, therefore, made his advances in a quiet and gently insinuating manner. Under cover of his character of singing master, he had made frequent visits at the farmhouse, carrying on his suit with the daughter by the side of the spring under the great elm, while Balt van Tassel sat smoking his evening pipe at one end of the piazza, and his little wife plied her spinning wheel at the other. I profess not to know how women's hearts are wooed and won. To me they have always been matters of riddle and admiration. But certain it is, from the moment Ichabod Crane made his advances, the interests of Brom Bones declined. His horse was no longer seen tied at the palings on Sunday nights, and a deadly feud gradually arose between him and the schoolmaster of Sleepy Hollow. Brom would fain have carried matters to open warfare, and Ichabod had overheard a boast by Bones that he would double the schoolmaster up and lay him on a shelf of his own schoolhouse but Ichabod was too wary to give him an opportunity. Brom had no alternative but to play off boorish practical jokes upon his rival. Bones and his gang of rough riders smoked out Ichabod's singing school by stopping up the chimney, broke into the schoolhouse at night 
and turned everything topsy-turvy. But what was still more annoying, Brom took opportunities of turning him to ridicule in presence of his mistress, and had a scoundrel dog, whom he taught to whine in the most ludicrous manner, and introduced as a rival of Ichabod's to instruct Katrina in psalmody. In this way, matters went on for some time. On a fine autumnal afternoon, Ichabod, in pensive mood, sat enthroned on the lofty stool whence he usually watched all the concerns of his little schoolroom. His scholars were all busily intent upon their books, or slyly whispering behind them with one eye kept upon the master, and a kind of buzzing stillness reigned. It was suddenly interrupted by the appearance of a man mounted on the back of a ragged colt. He came clattering up to the school door with an invitation to Ichabod to attend a merry-making to be held that evening at Meinheer van Tassel's. All was now bustle and hubbub in the lately quiet schoolroom. The scholars were hurried through their lessons without stopping at trifles. Those who were tardy had a smart application now and then in the rear to quicken their speed, and the whole school was turned loose an hour before the usual time. The gallant Ichabod now spent at least an extra half hour at his toilet, brushing and furbishing up his only suit of rusty black. That he might make his appearance in the true style of a cavalier, he borrowed a horse from the farmer with whom he was staying. The animal was a broken-down plough-horse that had outlived almost everything but his viciousness. In his day he must have had fire and metal, if we may judge from the name he bore of gunpowder. Ichabod was a suitable figure for such a steed. As he jogged slowly on his way, his eye ranged with delight over the treasures of jolly autumn. He passed the fragrant buckwheat fields, and as he beheld them, soft anticipations stole over his mind of dainty slapjacks, well buttered and garnished with honey by the delicate little dimpled hand of Katrina van Tassel. It was toward evening that Ichabod arrived at the center of Ilir van Tassel, which he found thronged with the pride and flower of the adjacent country. Old farmers, a spare leathern-faced race, in homespun coats and breeches, their brisk, withered little dames in close crimped caps, long-waisted short gowns, homespun petticoats, and gay calico pockets hanging on the outside. Buxom lasses, almost as antiquated in dress as their mothers, expecting where a straw hat, a fine ribbon, or perhaps a white frock gave symptoms of city innovation. The sons, in short square-skirted coats with rows of stupendous brass buttons and their hair generally cued with an eelskin in the fashion of the times. Brom Bones, however, was the hero of the scene, having come to the gathering on his favorite steed, Daredevil, a creature like himself, full of metal and mischief, and which no one but himself could manage. Ichabod was a kind and thankful creature, whose spirits rose with eating as some men's do with drink. He could not help rolling his large eyes round him on the ample charms of a genuine Dutch country tea-table in the sumptuous time of autumn. Such heaped-up platters of cakes and crullers of various kinds, known only to experienced Dutch housewives. Ichabod chuckled with the possibility that he, might one day be lord of all this scene of almost unimaginable luxury and splendor. Then, he thought, how soon he'd turn his back upon the old schoolhouse and snap his fingers in the face of every patron. And now the sound of the music from the hall summoned to the dance. 
Ichabod prided himself upon his dancing as much as upon his vocal powers. Not a limb, not a fiber about him was idle as his loosely hung frame in full motion went clattering about the room. How could the flogger of urchins be otherwise than animated and joyous? The lady of his heart was his partner in the dance, and smiling graciously in reply to all his amorous oglings, while Brom Bones, sorely smitten with love and jealousy, sat brooding by himself in one corner. When the dance was at an end, Ichabod was attracted to a knot of the sager folks, who with old Van Tassel sat smoking at one end of the piazza, gossiping over former times and drawing out long stories about ghosts and apparitions. Some mention was made of the woman in white, who haunted the dark glen at Raven Rock, and was often heard to shriek on winter nights before a storm, having perished there in the snow. The chief part of the stories, however, turned upon the favorite specter of Sleepy Hollow, the headless horseman, who had been heard several times of late near the bridge that crossed the brook in the woody dell next to the church, and it was said tethered his horse nightly among the graves in the churchyard. The tale was told of old Brower, a most heretical disbeliever in ghosts, how he met the horseman returning from his foray into Sleepy Hollow and was obliged to get up behind him how they galloped over hill and swamp until they reached the church bridge. There the horseman suddenly turned into a skeleton, threw Old Brower into the brook, and sprang away over the treetops with a clap of thunder. This story was matched by Brom Bones, who made light of the galloping Hessian as an arrant jockey. He affirmed that on returning one night from a neighboring village, he had been overtaken by this midnight trooper that he had offered to race with him for a bowl of punch, and should have won it, too. But just as they came to the church bridge, the Hessian bolted and vanished in a flash of fire. The revel now gradually broke up. The old farmers gathered together their families in their wagons and were heard for some time rattling along over the distant hills. Ichabod only lingered behind, according to the custom of country lovers, to have a tete-a-tete with the heiress, fully convinced that he was now on the high road to success. Something, however, I fear me, must have gone wrong, for he sallied forth, after no very great interval, with an air quite desolate and chopfallen. Oh, these women, these women! Was Katrina's encouragement of the poor pedagogue all a mere trick to secure her conquest of his rival? Let it suffice to say, Ichabod stole forth with the air of one who had been sacking a hen-roost, rather than a fair lady's heart. Without looking to the right or left, he went straight to the stable, and with several hearty cuffs and kicks, roused his steed most uncourteously. It was the very witching time of night that Ichabod, heavy-hearted and crestfallen, pursued his travel homeward. Far below, the Tappanzee spread its dusky waters, in the dead hush of midnight, he could hear the faint barking of a watchdog from the opposite shore. The night grew darker and darker. The stars seemed to sink deeper in the sky, and driving clouds occasionally hid them from his sight. He had never felt so lonely and dismal. All the stories of ghosts and goblins that he had heard earlier now came crowding upon his recollection. He would, moreover, soon be approaching the very place where many of the scenes of the ghost stories had been laid. Just ahead, where a small brook crossed the road, 
A few rough logs lying side by side served for a bridge. A group of oaks and chestnuts, matted thick with wild grapevines, threw a cavernous gloom over it. Ichabod gave gunpowder half a score of kicks in his starveling ribs and attempted to dash briskly across the bridge. But instead of starting forward, the perverse old animal only plunged to the opposite side of the road into a thicket of brambles. He came to a stand just by the bridge, with a suddenness that nearly sent his rider sprawling over his head. Just at this moment, in the dark shadow on the margin of the brook, Ichabod beheld something huge, misshapen, black, and towering. It stirred not, but seemed gathered up in the gloom, like some gigantic monster ready to spring upon the traveler. The hair of the affrighted schoolteacher rose upon his head, but summoning up a show of courage, he demanded in stammering accents, Who are you? He received no reply. He repeated his demand in a still more agitated voice. Still there was no answer. Once more, he cudgeled the sides of the inflexible gunpowder, and shutting his eyes, broke forth with involuntary fervor into a psalm tune. Just then the shadowy object of alarm put itself in motion, and with a scramble and a bound, stood at once in the middle of the road. He appeared to be a horseman of large dimensions, and mounted on a black horse of powerful frame. He kept aloof on one side of the road, jogging along on the blind side of old gunpowder, who had now got over his waywardness. Ichabod quickened his steed, in hopes of leaving this midnight companion behind. The stranger, however, quickened his horse to an equal pace. Ichabod pulled up and fell into a walk, thinking to lag behind. The other did the same. His heart began to sink within him. There was something in the stranger's moody silence that was appalling. It was soon fearfully accounted for. On mounting a rising ground, which brought the figure of his fellow traveler in relief against the sky, gigantic in height and muffled in a cloak, Ichabod was horror-struck on perceiving that he was headless. But his horror was still more increased on observing that the stranger's head was carried before him on the pommel of the saddle. Ichabod's terror rose to desperation. He rained a shower of kicks and blows upon gunpowder, hoping to give his companion the slip, but the spectre started full jump with him. Away then they dashed, stones flying and sparks flashing at every bound. Ichabod's flimsy garments fluttered in the air as he stretched his long lank body away over his horse's head in the eagerness of his flight. Gunpowder, who seemed possessed with a demon, plunged headlong downhill. As yet his panic had given his unskillful rider an apparent advantage in the chase. But just as he had got halfway through the hollow, the girths of the saddle gave way, and Ichabod felt it slipping from under him. He had just time to save himself by clasping old gunpowder round the neck when the saddle fell to the earth. An opening in the trees now cheered him with the hopes that the church bridge was at hand. He saw the whitewashed walls of the church dimly glaring under the trees beyond, he recollected the place where Brom Bones's ghostly competitor had disappeared. If I can but reach that bridge, thought Ichabod, I am safe. Just then he heard the black steed panting and blowing close behind him. He even fancied that he felt his hot breath. Another convulsive kick in the ribs, and old gunpowder sprang upon the bridge, 
He thundered over the resounding planks. He gained the opposite side. And now Ichabod cast a look behind, to see if his pursuer should vanish, according to rule, in a flash of fire and brimstone. Just then he saw the goblin rising in his stirrups, and the very act of hurling his head at him. Ichabod endeavored to dodge the horrible missile, but too late. It encountered his cranium with a tremendous crash. He was tumbled headlong into the dust, and gunpowder, the black steed, and the goblin rider passed by him like a whirlwind. The next morning, old gunpowder was found without his saddle, and with the bridle under his feet, soberly cropping the grass at his master's gate. Ichabod did not make his appearance at breakfast. Dinner hour came but no Ichabod. The boys assembled at the schoolhouse and strolled idly about the banks of the brook, but no schoolmaster. An inquiry was set on foot, and after diligent investigation, they came upon the saddle trampled in the dirt. The tracks of horses' hooves deeply dented in the road were traced to the bridge, beyond which, on the bank of a broad part of the brook, was found the hat of the unfortunate Ichabod and close beside it, a shattered pumpkin. The brook was searched, but the body of the schoolmaster was not to be discovered. The mysterious event caused much speculation at the church on the following Sunday. Knots of gazers were collected in the courtyard, at the bridge, and at the spot where the hat and pumpkin had been found. They shook their heads, and came to the conclusion that Ichabod had been carried off by the galloping Hessian. As he was a bachelor and in nobody's debt, nobody troubled his head any more about him. It is true, an old farmer who had been down to New York on a visit several years after brought home the intelligence that Ichabod Crane was still alive, that he had only changed his quarters to a distant part of the country, had kept school and studied law at the same time, had turned politician, and finally had been made a justice of the ten-pound court. Brom Bones, too, who shortly after his rival's disappearance conducted the blooming Katrina to the altar, was observed to look exceedingly knowing whenever the story of Ichabod was related, and always burst into a hearty laugh at the mention of the pumpkin, which led some to suspect that he knew more about the matter than he chose to tell. The old country wives, however, who are the best judges of these matters, maintain to this day that Ichabod was spirited away by supernatural means. The bridge became more than ever an object of superstitious awe, and that may be the reason why the road has been altered of late years, so as to approach the church by the border of the mill pond. The schoolhouse, being deserted, soon fell to decay, and was reported to be haunted by the ghost of the unfortunate teacher, and the ploughboy, loitering homeward of a still summer evening, has often fancied Ichabod's voice at a distance, chanting a melancholy psalm tune among the tranquil solitudes of Sleepy Hollow. You just listened to Eduardo Ballerini reading The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. Yesteryear's Stories from Home is produced by Tim Donahue, Eduardo Ballerini, and me, Melanie Hoops. Sound designed by Josh Govier and featuring archives from the Hastings Historical Society, Special thanks to Ed Herbstman. We'd like to also thank Jonathan Kruk. To find out how to see him perform, go to Jonathan Kruk, that's K-R-U-K dot com. 
From all of us to all of you, thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more stories from the place that you call home.